let me tell you a little story about an automotive scandal that was somehow both among the biggest con jobs in the history of the industry and an oft-forgotten footnote within it. It's a story that begins with a foreign decision that would have far-reaching domestic consequences. October 17, 1973. As a result of the Yom Kippur War, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries made the decision not to ship oil to any nation that supported Israel in the conflict with Egypt and Syria. Gas prices skyrocketed, and filling stations were crowded with people trying to top up while the getting was good. The economic impact on the United States could not be overstated as the Arab oil embargo revealed the extent to which the United States was reliant upon Middle East oil. Of course, it also altered the course of the automotive industry in the U.S., which had been riding high on the hog of gas-guzzling land yachts. Put simply, the embargo increased the demand for smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles and consequently led to the explosion of the import market, which to that point hadn't been doing too well. For example, a report by Ward's Auto states that in 1950, imports accounted for just 21,287 units annually in the United States. By 1977, in the years following the embargo, imports topped 2 million units per year. Although the fuel embargo was lifted in March of 1974, a short five months later, the price of oil had already ballooned from $3 a barrel to nearly 12 with the penalties trickling down to the American public, who suddenly found fuel less affordable than at any point in history outside of wartime. So you can't exactly blame the public for turning to imports in droves. And what's interesting is that the oil crisis prompted people to take chances on cars they might not have otherwise driven, only to then discover that Hey, this little import is actually kind of fun. I'm talking your RX-7s and Celicas of the world, with their nimble, sporty feel and their unique look. Sure, fuel efficiency was the catalyst, and cost was a definite factor. But imports wouldn't have become a mainstay in North America if consumers didn't genuinely love driving these smaller cars. Hell, Toyota went from nearly going bankrupt in 1949 to suddenly surpassing Volkswagen as the top import brand in the United States. And that's just one example. Domestic manufacturers struggled to keep up, which made potential investors susceptible to anything that sounded like it could save the American auto industry from foreign dominance. Enter Liz Carmichael, an engineer, an entrepreneur, an apparent jack-of-all-trades, offering an improbably shaped yellow-painted three-wheeled car called the Dale. A vehicle that proposed to solve the gas crisis through fuel efficiency and space-age technological advancements. Now, in just about any other era, it's hard to imagine the Dale gaining any traction whatsoever. But when you tout your car is getting 70 miles to the gallon for under two grand, it's not exactly surprising that buzz forms around it. Nor is it necessarily surprising that a cult of personality forms around the person pushing it onto an otherwise uninformed public. Of course, you'd think any con artist worth a damn would pick a different industry in which to perpetrate their con, but the American auto industry was at a crossroads. And with Liz Carmichael, investors found someone who had the answer they were looking for. And they believed in that answer but only because they were so desperate to find it in the first place. This is the tale of the Dale. Again. Our story begins proper in Southern California, where a man by the name of Dale Clift designed and developed the Dale. Clift was an engineer and part-time inventor who worked for Litton Industries, an electronics manufacturer and military contractor. When Clift began looking for a solution to the embargo-related price hike in 1973, his plan was, naturally, to design a more fuel-efficient vehicle. 
Gas prices hit 75 cents a gallon, and Clift, an avid motorcyclist, was having trouble figuring out how he could ride his comparatively fuel-efficient motorcycle to work on rainy days, while also still remaining presentable for work. So he came up with the idea for a three-wheeler powered by his motorcycle, which would have its front wheel removed and its back half attached to the tail end of an enclosure with two front wheels to create an all-weather, gas-sipping, three-wheeled vehicle. He set to work on the creation utilizing a framework consisting of a half-inch electrical conduit with joints soldered together with a copper-zinc alloy. The engine was a 305 twin, fresh off of a Honda CB77 Superhawk motorcycle. The rear brakes came from a Honda Hawk, and the two front wheels were suspended using forks. So basically, it was a motorcycle wearing a car. Clift built this entire thing in his garage with the help of a co-worker from Lytton. Because if you can't depend on loosely associated work colleagues to help you build an imaginary car from the ground up, I'm not really sure who the hell else you're supposed to turn to. Now, that it worked at all was a miracle, but Clift actually managed to get the okay from the state of California to take this thing out on the road, as the prototype Dale was registered as a motorcycle and deemed street legal. Granted, you could have stocked a newsstand with all the issues this prototype had, whether it was carbon monoxide leaking in the cabin, the complete and utter lack of any crash safety measures whatsoever, or brakes that were really only brakes in the nominal sense, since the cable-actuated brakes and undersized tires offered little in the way of significant stopping power. Yeah, the Dale worked, but... If you crashed it, you were probably looking at substantial medical bills, if you survived at all. In short, the difference between the Dale and a proper car was wider than the gap between people who learn a language for self-enrichment and the people who learn just enough of another language to impress those who don't know any of it at all. Still, Clift drove his creation around the San Fernando Valley and turned heads pretty much everywhere he went, and why not? It looks like something a character in a Dr. Seuss book would drive. And considering his technologically mischievous nature, one wonders what he might have accomplished if he'd linked up with the right investors and business people from the start. But that wasn't really in the cards for Clift, who wasn't so much eccentric as he was an optimist. And, well... Con artists tend to burn through the optimism of their marks like embargoed fuel. Geraldine Elizabeth Liz Carmichael was 6 feet 2 inches, 225 pounds of pants-suited ambition. According to those who knew her, she was a charismatic figure with a deep voice and an imposing physical presence, and an origin story worthy of a comic book superhero. At different times, Liz presented herself as a farm girl from Indiana who built her first car at 18, a businesswoman who studied at the University of Miami, an ex-stock car racer, an OSU graduate with more degrees than a thermometer, and a widowed mother of five whose beloved husband was a NASA structural engineer before dying in 1966. And while there was nothing that necessarily precluded those different aspects of Carmichael's life from having all happened, the stories themselves had enough holes that you could climb them like a rock face. Granted, had anyone actually tried to verify Liz Carmichael's identity, she probably would have been found out, since it's hard to find independent corroboration for anything she presented as fact. Except for one facet of her story which we'll get to in a bit. But needless to say, everyone took her at face value. Or rather, I should say that while not everyone who interacted with Liz Carmichael believed every detail she presented about her backstory, no one had any immediate reason to suspect she wasn't the business person and engineer she claimed to be. Liz Carmichael fashioned herself an entrepreneur, with an eye towards developing experimental vehicles through her business, 20th Century Motor Car Corporation, a name lifted almost verbatim from Atlas Shrugged, because, pfft, of course it was. 
Dale Clift was put in touch with Carmichael by a stranger who approached him while he was out to dinner with his wife at a restaurant on Ventura Boulevard in 1974, which is pretty much how I always imagined a business happening in the 1970s. You see, Liz Carmichael looked at the concept of the Dale and saw dollar signs. In her mind, all the car really needed was her promotional muscle behind it and apparently she was convincing enough to get Clift to sign over the production rights to the vehicle in exchange for potentially millions in royalties if the car proved successful, which Carmichael all but guaranteed it would be. And why wouldn't Clift believe her? When you have someone proclaiming your invention to be the future of the auto industry, and that person is offering to pay you millions for the privilege of sharing it with the world, it can be hard to resist. Even if the advance check was only for $1,001. But then, Carmichael was only just getting started. It would all even out eventually, right? Well, you see, that's kind of the problem. Carmichael was only just getting started. To get the Dale off the ground, Carmichael set up an office in Encino, California, and began to make public statements about the three-wheeler. It would get 70 miles per gallon. It would cost $2,000 or less. And in the first year, 20th Century Motor Car Corporation would produce 88,000 cars and 250,000 in the second. Carmichael's goal was, quote, to knock the hell out of Detroit and rule the auto industry like a queen. A bold declaration, but one viewed as a warning sign among those close to Dale Clift, who didn't immediately sense anything was amiss. Richard Smith, a friend of Dale Clift's, who at the time had been working at the GM assembly plant in Van Nuys, California, quickly became suspicious of Carmichael. In his book, The Dale Automobile, An American Dream, Smith would recall that GM's Van Nuys plant had roughly 5,000 people employed across two shifts with two separate floors containing several million square feet and a ton of equipment, including paint-drying ovens on the roof. And with all of this manpower and all of this equipment, they could only manage 250,000 units per year after countless years of operation. Yet Carmichael was boasting about the production capabilities of a company in its infancy, with almost no evidence to suggest 20th Century had the resources or the infrastructure to rival a big three automaker. Smith would write, quote, Liz made the statement that two men could produce a Dale body every six minutes. Come on, give me a break. As I choked on this information, I began pointing out a few doubts I had to Dale. This I did in as kind a way as I could, while showing my concern about the information that Liz was feeding to Dale. I pointed out to Dale that the federal government had forced their desire to have a standard bumper height on all auto manufacturers. That minor detail forced our plant to spend about a million dollars to erect a new building with computerized equipment to track bumper heights. The answer I got from Dale was that, We will get all that. End quote. But before the car even went into production, the Dale was rolled out with a full promotional push, including a six-page color booklet touting it as the first space-age automobile, and a car designed and built like it's ready to be driven to the moon, which is a claim that's almost Ralph Cramden-like in its boastfulness. At the very least, it's more sketched than anything you'll find in an art school. And the release details went even further, describing it as a car built out of rocket structural resin that was supposedly capable of absorbing four times the impact of a Cadillac. It was also alleged to be made with Rigidex windows, which were said to have 70 times the impact resistance of safety glass. The printed circuit dashboard would allow accessories to be directly plugged in, while the three-wheel design would make for a lighter car overall, with a curb weight of around 1,000 pounds. The engine being trumpeted for this model was an 850cc twin from a BMW motorcycle, making 40 horsepower and reaching top speeds of 80 miles per hour. And the promotional push didn't stop there. 
20th Century was already planning two other three-wheeled companions to the Dale, the Ravel Sedan and the Vanagon Station Wagon. Before manufacturing had even begun, Carmichael had already planned a small fleet of Dale-related vehicles that she swore up and down would be the dawning of a new automotive revolution. This naturally raised further suspicions for Richard Smith, Dale Cliff's good friend. Again, this was a guy who'd been employed for years at the GM Van Nuys assembly plant, so he knew more than a thing or two about the process of automotive assembly. And Carmichael's printed circuit dashboard claims set off alarm bells. Smith would write, quote, I had a problem with the much-heralded printed circuit dashboard that would eliminate the need for electrical wiring. Printed circuits for the instrument cluster that powered the instrumental panel lights and gauges are nothing new. The panel lights and gauges require very little electrical current to operate, and are well within the ability of a printed circuit to supply. However, Liz was saying all the accessories, including the radio, heater, and air conditioner, would be plugged into this printed circuit. An example of what's wrong with this notion is that most air conditioner circuits are fused with a 20 amp fuse. This means that a 12 gauge wire would be necessary to supply 20 amps of power for the air conditioner. I have never seen a printed circuit with enough copper in it to handle this amount of current. It would not make economical sense to produce a printed circuit for this kind of application. Another revelation from Liz revealed that the air conditioner for the Dale would have no moving parts. This caught my attention because air conditioning is based on pressure differential. A compressor pumps up the refrigerant to a high pressure, which is then allowed to expand in an evaporator. The sudden drop in pressure produces cold. This requires a compressor, which most certainly has moving parts. End quote. But the good-natured Clift remained on board with Carmichael, even as his suspicions were gradually aroused by his friend's observations. Manufacturing was set to begin in a rented hangar in an airport in Burbank, California, with Carmichael claiming that once the operation was up and running and the first cars started rolling out in the summer of 1975, the Dale would be sold through some 100 dealerships and 250 distributors. Carmichael found investors who bought into the tune of roughly $33 million, and more followed throughout 1974, as dealers and prospective customers alike sought to put money down on what was basically guaranteed to be the car of the future. That is, if everything people were hearing about the car was true. But coverage of the Dale featured a lot of surface-level amazement and not a whole lot of thorough scrutiny of Carmichael or her claims, much less any real skepticism about the car itself. Naturally, part of the issue with the Dale was Liz Carmichael and her dedication to the hustle. She just could not resist making grandiose statements about the car's performance capabilities, like how the low center of gravity was a key component to its safety over other cars, adding that the weight distribution afforded by the triangular wheel arrangement made the car functionally impossible to roll over, which, I mean, whatever, you know? But even if the media bought it, there was no way it'd pass muster in California. Because, you see, the motorcycle classification was fine for Cliff's personal use prototype, but there was no way that was going to stick for a vehicle intended for mass production. Still, the public wanted to see the Dale. So Carmichael allowed car and driver photographer Mike Salisbury to visit 20th Century's offices for an up-close look at the car. What he found was a prototype that couldn't even charitably be called a prototype without offending actual prototypes like Alex Mercer and John Cena. Put simply, the visit from car and driver is essentially what blew this hot pile of easy-bake bullshit wide open. For one, the car didn't have a steering wheel of any kind, as Salisbury wasn't intended to actually drive the thing. And even if he was, he literally couldn't, since the engine compartment was stuffed 
with a purely decorative, non-functioning lawnmower motor. And okay, let's just pretend that a proper engine and steering wheel had been stuffed into the car. Even if the car had all of that, Mike Salisbury wasn't about to be traveling anywhere because the Dale lacked a damn gas pedal. It wasn't just that nothing on the car worked, it's that the Dale lacked many of the things that make a car a car. This model was a car with a child's understanding of what's actually supposed to go into one. And Carmichael made sure that the act didn't just extend to the car, but to the employees Salisbury encountered. As Preston Lerner and Matt Stone would write in their book, History's Greatest Automotive Mysteries, quote, Ringed around the car, a couple of guys wearing Clark Kent glasses were scribbling on clipboards. Salisbury was convinced they were performing a pantomime for his benefit. End quote. Yup, gotta look busy here at 20th Century, where everything is totally on the up and up. And we're definitely not just pretending that this car is happening. Everything about the Dale just had the whiff of pure artifice. According to Car and Driver's eventual write-up, the Dale's own-on portable engine generator was, quote, fed by a lawnmower carburetor stuck on the end of a sloppily welded lead pipe. The rear end was a Ford differential, cut in half, mounted to one wheel. The transmission, a Toyota automatic, was stuck into the rear end with no drive shaft. End quote. So yeah, not exactly the state-of-the-art car of the future that Carmichael was selling to anyone with ears. And yet, despite a more showroom-friendly model of the Dale being put on display at the LA Auto Show that year, Carmichael couldn't backpedal the media's sudden apprehension about the car. Among those to witness the Dale up close during this time was investigative reporter Pete Noyes of KABC-TV, the Los Angeles ABC network affiliate. Noyes was an instrumental figure in bringing the dubious nature of the Dale to light. Through his visits to 20th Century, Noyes discovered a complete lack of an axle on the display model, as the wheels were nailed in place with a 2x4 and his surprise visit to the abandoned Lockheed factory 20th century claimed to be using to assemble cars revealed not one single car, tool, or machine whatsoever. To cap it all off, Noyes also made contact with a former district attorney's investigator, who revealed that one of Carmichael's key assistants was a known associate of L.A. organized crime. So Noyce took his findings and began running reports on the Dale on KABC-TV, producing alongside on-camera reporter Dick Carlson. The Dale car, a dream or a nightmare, began as a feature story on the ABC affiliate, but quickly became a full-blown Peabody award-winning series that brought the scam to wider public attention. The investigation debunked some of the outrageous speed and safety claims made by Carmichael, and subsequent inquiries by law enforcement called her entire past into question. Although the public at large didn't know it yet, investors and business partners would soon get reality doled out to them in installments, like the world's most disappointing subscription box. On the subject of disappointment, Dale Clift seemed to finally see the writing on the wall. Although he'd maintained his faith in Carmichael throughout the early phases of 20th Century's promotional push, his confidence began to wane as the claims about the car grew more difficult to believe. The critical moment came when Carmichael stated to the press that she had crashed a working Dale into a wall at 30 miles per hour with no damage. Clift knew good and damn well that they didn't have a Dale that could even go 30 miles per hour in the first place, much less a Dale that could crash into a brick wall at any speed without sustaining damage. As Richard Smith recalls, quote, I believe this dishonest statement by Liz was the turning point in Dale's absolute faith in Liz. While the issue about the car achieving 70 miles per gallon could be construed as a matter of opinion, Inferring that the car had been driven into a wall at 30 miles per hour when it had not 
was another issue altogether. End quote. Clift confronted Carmichael at the 20th century offices in Encino, and it was there that he learned that she planned to move the entire operation out of California and over to Texas, an omission that suddenly became a point of contention between the two business partners. Or, as I should say, ex-business partners. Carmichael cut ties with Clift, telling him to leave and never return. Before Clift could even make it over to the production facility, security had been informed not to allow him onto any 20th century property. Carmichael would later tell the media that Clift was, quote, no more important to the company than an office girl, end quote. Just like that, an inventor was shut out of the process of his own creation. Shortly thereafter, Clift met with Richard Smith and handed him a shoebox full of papers. The box contained every document in his possession concerning the Dale and his dealings with Liz Carmichael. He gave Smith $50 and instructed him to place the documents in a safe deposit box, but to keep the location of the box and its key a secret. Clift was concerned someone might come after him or the papers. In the wake of his break from Carmichael, the inventor began carrying a gun with him at all times, fearful of a disgruntled Carmichael or any of the employees who were still loyal to her. However, an avalanche of horrible outcomes would soon begin piling up for Liz Carmichael. Because fraud is one thing, but murder is something else entirely. Even if people weren't recognizing it at the time, there was an influx of increasingly suspicious activities surrounding the Dale, Liz Carmichael, and 20th Century Motor Car Corporation. For instance, Carmichael's decision to move the company to Dallas, Texas, and have their new home base running out of an office near the East 35 interstate was motivated by several factors. For one, there was a complaint brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission which applied a restraining order to prevent Carmichael from doing business in California. There was also interference from the California Corporation Division. When Carmichael continued to tout the utility of the Dale without offering any actual proof, the CCD grew more suspicious and issued a cease and desist, pending further investigation. Three months after the first cease and desist, a second one came. During this period, Carmichael and five of her 20th century employees were essentially barred from practicing business. In particular, they were prohibited from selling any stock in 20th century. But although Liz Carmichael did her business in the state, she hadn't actually formed the company in California. 20th Century Motor Car Corporation had been incorporated in Nevada, and so a U.S. District Judge sat on the Securities and Exchange Commission case pending a complete audit of the company's finances. Of course, this meant that the assets and records of the company were protected from any further meddling from its employees. In much the same way Liz Carmichael had shut Dale Clift out of participating in the Dale's creation, the government had shut Liz Carmichael out of her own company. Not that any of this really stopped her. As if thumbing her nose at the cease and desist, Carmichael put out help-wanted ads and then offered prospective employees stock options in the company. This, despite the fact that she lacked both a license to sell shares, as well as a license to even sell cars in the first place. No, seriously, this is a person who wanted to launch a new automotive revolution, but didn't even have a license to be able to sell the cars that she swore would start that revolution. And yet, when confronted with this by the Associated Press, Carmichael doubled down, stating that while she didn't want to sound like an egomaniac, she considered herself a genius who would revolutionize the auto industry. And sure enough, Liz would somewhat revive the Dale's reputation in Dallas by attracting potential consumers who were disillusioned with high gas prices. And this time, she had a model with a working engine and everything. 
never mind that you couldn't shift worth a damn. It was just enough to get people interested. Hell, Carmichael even managed to get the Dale featured as a prize on The Price is Right in early 1975, despite the car being nothing more than a vague promise of something shiny and new. But there were people who still believed in Carmichael, because again, she provided something people wanted to believe was real at a time where foreign industry was making its presence felt at a deeper level. And yet, for as cool as it probably was to get the Dale featured on The Price is Right, early 1975 wasn't exactly a great time for 20th century. You see, this is where we get around to the murder part. Because in January of that year, an employee named William D. Miller was found dead in his office, the victim of four gunshot wounds to the head. The prime suspect in his murder was one of his colleagues in the company, a man by the name of Jack Oliver. Apparently, the two men had served together in San Quentin prison, and their bad blood dated back to their time in the can. I couldn't find any motive for why exactly Oliver killed Miller, or just what the nature of their nebulous bad blood in San Quentin really was. But regardless of the why... The murder resulted in 20th century coming under greater scrutiny from law enforcement. To be more specific, the California DMV had been suspicious of Carmichael longer than just about anybody, and had kept a detailed record of 20th century's dealings, which were provided to any agency that requested that information. Naturally, that information was requested by Texas law enforcement, who wished to convene a court hearing to investigate the possibility that the Dale was, in fact, a scam intended to defraud the people of Texas. During that hearing, one of Carmichael's own engineers, a man by the name of John Michael Power, revealed that the Dale wasn't exactly a functioning car. It was merely a Franken-car made from the parts of other vehicles to give the basic appearance of a functioning car. There was allegedly no real intention to ever produce the vehicle. And although Power's credibility as a witness came into question over lies concerning the duration and nature of his employment, it was still enough to get indictments handed down for Liz and nine other 20th century employees for conspiracy to commit grand theft. So Liz went on the run, bailing from the $100,000 home she shared with her five children. And that's bringing it back to one of the parts of Liz's backstory that actually proved to be true. She really did have five children, with whom she lived in their six-figure home, alongside a woman often introduced as a secretary for 20th century. Now, it appeared that the house was left in a hurry, considering many of Carmichael's belongings were left behind. As police combed through the property, they found a collection of items that didn't make sense at the time, but would in the weeks to come. The search revealed various wigs, padded bras, and hair remover. With Carmichael on the run, the picture suddenly became clearer. Though, really, the truth about the Dale would have come to light sooner or later, if for no other reason than the shoddy nature of the cover-up surrounding the car itself. That rocket structural resin and impact-resistant Rigidex body? Simple fiberglass. The 850cc twin? Just a plain old generator engine. It would hardly make it around a Wendy's drive through much less the California highway system. In fact, Carmichael's complete lack of any concrete proof of productivity makes her outlandish media boasts all the more ridiculous. I mean, what exactly did she think would happen? How long did she expect to be able to get away with promising a product, taking money from investors, and then not delivering? Sooner or later the bill was going to come due. And naturally, to pretty much no one's surprise, Carmichael didn't even bother trying to provide the appearance of a legitimate business. The 20th century bookkeeping was comically, historically awful, owing to the fact that 20th century motor car corporation was largely a cash business. 
a cash business. I mean, they tried to keep it off the books entirely, thinking that no one would notice the lack of a substantive record for millions of dollars. So it's kind of surprising that it took so long for 20th century assets to be seized, for those indictments to be handed down, and for arrest warrants to be issued. Despite going into hiding, Carmichael was arrested by the FBI after nine weeks on the run. Living in Miami and working for a dating service under the assumed name of Susan Raines, the feds found Carmichael climbing through the window of the house she was renting with her five kids, wearing a pink checkered pantsuit and maintaining her innocence, like a college student maintains a house plant or a Toyota Corolla. I'm, I'm just saying she maintained it poorly, but you, you know what I'm saying. Carmichael was extradited to Los Angeles to stand trial on over 20 different charges, ranging from conspiracy to grand theft to straight-up stock fraud, having cheated over 5,000 clients out of nearly $6 million. Finally, the mystery began to unravel, and the truth behind Liz Carmichael's past came to light. Upon her arrest in the spring of 1975, law enforcement began to research Carmichael's alleged background. And none of it added up. There was no record of Carmichael having attended the University of Miami, no evidence that she had graduated from OSU, and no record of her husband, a supposed NASA structural engineer who died in 1966. Liz Carmichael was revealed to be 47-year-old Jerry Dean Michael, a fugitive who'd been on the run since 1961 for counterfeiting and skipping bail. Over the span of years on the run, Jerry had started dressing like a woman and taking hormones. And with the dramatic change in appearance came a less dramatic change in name. Yes, Jerry Dean Michael took that surname and just added the word car in front of it. Hell, the first name hardly even changed either, as Geraldine is a pretty short walk from Jerry. And yet, while it's easy to assume that Jerry Dean Michael was simply co-opting the struggles of the transgender community in order to avoid law enforcement, you would think he'd have switched back to going by Jerry Dean Michael once he was caught, if that were really the case. But instead... The opposite happened. Geraldine Elizabeth Liz Carmichael fought for and won the right to be referred to as a woman in all court proceedings. And it eventually came to light that not only had Carmichael been taking hormones, but that she had plans to undergo reassignment surgery. And in a general sense, you really don't go that far if your goal is just to stay out of prison. In fact, Evidence suggests Carmichael had been living as a woman since long before perpetrating the Dale scam. That secretary who lived with Carmichael and her five kids? Her name was Vivian Barrett Michael, the wife of Jerry Dean Michael, and the mother of their five children. Her statement in response to increased public scrutiny regarding Liz Carmichael was to defend the person with whom she and their children had lived for over a decade. Vivian told the press, quote, We love her just as much as we loved him. The children call her mother Liz, and me just plain mother. End quote. Liz Carmichael is a complex and divisive figure. On the one hand, she had the bravery to fight for the right to be recognized humanely in a criminal court and yet she lacked the actual principles not to have committed her crimes in the first place. In the face of cease and desist orders and criminal investigations and overwhelming evidence of wrongdoing, she doubled down. It's the type of boldness that probably could have been turned towards something decent and, you know, not criminal. But whether through circumstances or ambition, Liz Carmichael chose her career path. The path she chose led to a California courthouse, where Liz Carmichael made the brazen decision to refuse counsel and represent herself, 
which is pretty baffling when you consider the magnitude of the charges facing her. And frankly, her defense wasn't particularly great either. Carmichael claimed that she was being unfairly persecuted for pursuing an idea that was ahead of its time. In a more specific and less figurative sense, her argument was that she wasn't given enough time to bring the Dale to fruition, adding that if it had made it into dealerships, it would have been a guaranteed seller, and the investors would have made their money back. Hell, she even compared herself to Henry Ford, testifying that Ford Motor Company once had no cars and no indication of future viability. Yet Ford found investors to help get the company off the ground. And with time, the end result was a profit of $40 million for one of the investors. Several employees also testified as to their faith in Liz Carmichael, and the certainty that she had every intention of producing the Dale, but was just ignorant about how much money work, and time would go into its production. Granted, it's hard to use ignorance as a defense when you try really hard to keep finances off the books altogether, but it was part of Carmichael's legal strategy, and it wouldn't be the only strategy she'd employ. As the trial continued, Carmichael's situation grew more and more desperate. Facing who knows how many years in prison, Carmichael took measures that reflected that desperation. Remember Pete Noyes and Dick Carlson, the two reporters who had a hand in blowing the Dale scandal wide open? Both were figures in the trial against Carmichael. The prosecutor in the case pressed Carmichael's financially secretive activity and the lack of any substantive evidence that production on the car would soon commence or ever commence for that matter, and it made Carmichael angry. And again, it made her desperate. And so, during the criminal trial, Carmichael allegedly reached out to a hitman about taking Carlson, Noyes, and the prosecutor out of the picture. And that hitman actually went through with the attempt. As Dick Carlson, who would go on to become a United States ambassador, would recall, Carmichael's hitman got as far as firing, quote, a rifle shot at Pete, end quote. And although the assassination attempt failed, it illustrated just how far Carmichael would go to secure her freedom. And yet, for a failed defense by a client representing herself in a seemingly hopeless federal case, it actually took the jury a while to come to a decision, as the jury didn't reach a verdict until their 16th day of deliberations. But when the jury came back into the courtroom, the verdict reflected what everyone already knew. It was Judgment Day for Liz Carmichael. On January 24, 1977, the self-professed automotive revolutionary was found guilty on 26 different offenses, including conspiracy, grand theft, counterfeiting, and, of course, fraud. And although she spent close to four years fighting her conviction and appeals, the court slapped down her attempts at clemency. The Dale was the product that brought about Liz Carmichael's meteoric rise, but it was also the product that would become a defining failure despite her continued claims that she had every intention of producing the car. To hear Carmichael tell it, the Dale was still a possibility, and would be every bit the success she foretold, if it actually got the chance to hit the market. But by now, there was no turning it around, even if, through some insane happenstance, she got the backing of some billionaire venture capitalist. It was too late. Liz Carmichael had radioactive press, and no investor was going to get anywhere near the Dale, even if Carmichael wasn't involved at all. And so Liz Carmichael accepted her fate and resigned herself to a life behind bars, with little hope of ever seeing the light of day. Oh, wait, no, never mind, she escaped. Okay, so basically, after all of her appeals were shot down, Liz Carmichael decided to jump bail and go on the run in 1980. Now, you can blame a TV company for this, 
You see, they wanted the rights to her story, and so they decided to pay the $50,000 bail while Carmichael awaited her appeal hearing, as if they were going to be the ones in this entire story that would avoid being taken for a ride. But nope. Carmichael accepted the bail and then left the TV company holding the bag. No good deed, am I right? So Liz Carmichael was a fugitive from justice yet again, and she managed to stay that way for nearly 10 years. It wasn't until 1989 when Carmichael's case aired on Unsolved Mysteries, the greatest show in the history of television ever, that she was finally apprehended once and for all. While Carmichael was known to have several male aliases, I imagine at least one of our listeners has, including Jerry Barrett, Mike Moran, Mike Morgan, William Tracy Parker, and William Richard Raines, Carmichael didn't make the choice to hide as a man. Instead, she was discovered living in a small Texas town under the alias Catherine Elizabeth Johnson. But here's the real kicker. The name of that small Texas town where Carmichael's flight from justice came to an end was Dale. Dale... Texas. That's wild. She was arrested and returned to California to serve her sentence in an all-male facility. And yet, in another twist, it turns out that for all that running, all that appealing in any court that would listen, Carmichael served only 32 months for the Dale scam before being released on parole. 32 months! Liz Carmichael served her time and was released, and thus the Dale faded into automotive legend, because so did Liz Carmichael. She and the three-wheeled Dale became a footnote in the history of the auto industry, and the desperate lengths to which people would go to find an answer to the fuel crisis. But it's also a cautionary tale, a reminder that if something sounds too good to be true, there's a chance it probably is. And maybe it's just as well. Awkward-looking yet fuel-efficient three-wheeled car isn't exactly a concept anybody needs to revisit anytime soon. And yet, well, about that. So Paul Elio is a man who founded Elio Motors in 2009 with the goal of producing a three-wheeled auto cycle that could get 84 miles to the gallon on a base price of $7,300, which, when you adjust for inflation, is actually cheaper than the $2,000 Liz Carmichael planned on charging for the Dale. That $2,000 would come out to around $10,186 today. But while the car was due to be released in 2012, it's been delayed year after year after year. Elio tried to secure a loan from the Department of Energy amidst advance reservations that the company received in spite of all the bad press. But unlike the Dale, you actually could drive the Elio. Not that Paul Elio's claims about his car being the future of the auto industry were all that different from Carmichael's. And like Carmichael, Elio had a real talent for making money disappear reporting to the SEC that his company has lost roughly $53.8 million over the course of operation. So why even file with the Securities and Exchange Commission? Well, the intention was to establish an IPO for its stock, with the goal of raising $100 million in capital. Elio said that if the goal was met, production would begin in 2019 at the very earliest. More specifically, Elio was aiming for production to begin in December 2019. So yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. Until then, it's just the tale of the Dale revisited. As for Dale Clift, the inventor of the vehicle Carmichael repurposed for her fraud, that $1,001 check was all he received out of the promised $3 million in royalties for the Dale along with a second payment in the form of a $2,000 check, which bounced. Clift would eventually found the Dale Development Company to house all his ideas and patents, and he basically lived the tireless life of an inventor, always brainstorming, always creating, 
although none of his subsequent inventions would be as famous as the Dale. Sadly, Clift died long before Carmichael's 1989 arrest, passing away in 1981, and it's kind of sad that Clift went to the grave with Carmichael still free. In the last years of his life, Clift tried to rehabilitate his image, even though I'm not sure anybody blamed him for Carmichael's actions in the first place. As his friend Richard Smith would write, quote, The biggest area of concern for Dale was his good name. He worried over the prospect that because of so much press, people would forever link him with the scandal. That prospect troubled him for the rest of his life, to the point he would explain his position on the subject to anyone who would listen. He armed himself with a three-legged easel with all the important paperwork attached. He would display it and answer questions wherever he was invited, and some places he wasn't. It became evident that Dale was a person of extraordinary personal integrity. End quote. And perhaps that's how he should be remembered, even if the car bearing his name isn't exactly looked upon as fondly. As for the Dale itself, only three were ever built outside of Clift's original mock-up, which is now lost. I've tried to locate them, and the best I could do was info that a design model lacking an interior is supposedly on display at the Museum of American Speed in Lincoln, Nebraska. The mock-up originally stored at 20th Century's office in Encino is currently housed, though very rarely displayed, at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. And the final Dale, the sole working prototype, was allegedly purchased at auction by well-known car collector Barry Mayton. Despite Mayton's vow to one day restore the Dale, it remains in his private collection. As for what became of Liz Carmichael, conflicting reports have her passing away from cancer in 2004, while another had her living in Austin, Texas, with her daughter, operating a roadside flower-selling business, using either homeless people or children to sell roses, depending on your source. At the end of the day, the tale of the Dale is that of a con artist who pulled the wool over countless eyes. And yet that criminal remains fascinating, not solely because of what she did or because of who she was, but because of her commitment to the notion that the car itself was viable. Maybe it would have been, had the right people gotten hold of the idea but it almost seems like a car that was destined to fail. A business that, irrespective of con artists, clandestine backroom dealings, media coverage, or court proceedings, had all the sustainability of the embargoed fuel that kicked this whole thing off in the first place. <laughs>